Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Claude Duval holds a special place in the history of Napa Valley. While perhaps not as loud as other Napa Valley participants in the historic 1976 Judgment of Paris tasting, Claude Duval was among the U.S. contingent that dominated the French wines. In the decades since, Claude Duval became a widely recognized brand, but in building the brand, the quality of the wine and winemaking may have strayed. Well, in 2014, Claude Duval hired Ted Henry as the winemaker to change all of that. I sat down with Henry to talk about what he's doing both in the vineyard and in the winery to bring Claude Duval back, and of course, to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Ted Henry, winemaker at Claude Duval. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How did you get into wine? Well, actually, I, I grew up in, in the East Bay in California, about uh, 45 minutes from Napa Valley. And I happened to work in high school at a athletic club that had a lot of members that were in local sports teams. So these were, you know, Oakland Athletics and, uh, and Golden State Warriors, things like that. So these, these guys were, they were young guys, they had a lot of money, and they were looking for some way to spend it. And what they ended up doing, I, they kind of would riff with each other and talk about um, going to Napa, Sonoma, uh, collecting wine. And it was a thing that became kind of a sport for them. Aside from the real sports, <laughs> interesting. Um, and so it was one of these things where I would hear these stories, like you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I went to Silver Oak last weekend. I bought three cases of wine, whatever. And they would talk about their little exploits in buying wine and stuff like that. And, and it was something they planted a seed when I was in high school because it was something that they were so fascinated in. They kept talking about it, talking about it. Um, and it was either wine or golf or whatever. And to me, it was something like, well, there's something special about this wine thing because. People don't get excited about you know, you know, buying a Coca Cola or whatever. It's like there's something interesting here, and so I was asking questions. I kind of got my education originally from these guys, and when I would go to wine stores, grocery stores, I was fascinated with the variety of wines you'd see on the shelf. You know, and what are these? What does this number mean? Why does it say you know 1996 or, or what is uh, the the, you know, why is the grape variety on there? All that and the art piece of it as well. Um, I thought the whole thing was pretty fascinating. So I just really kind of was was into it, really started paying attention to wine. Um, and my cousin, who's a little bit older than me, was going to UC Davis just outside of Sacramento. And he said, come out, visit me at Davis. He was pre-med, he's a doctor now, but he said uh, on the tour when I was there, hey, by the way, we have this wine school. And, you know, it's one of the best in the country. You should check it out. And I was kind of amazed. I actually didn't know at the time that it even existed. Hmm. And I thought, wow, if I can go to college and make wine, that doesn't sound bad. Is it a good gig? It does not sound bad. So I, uh, I enrolled in that. Luckily, I got into the school and uh, went right from high school into the wine program at Davis. So that was really, um, that was really how it started. I never looked back. I, I loved every bit of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then how did you end up at Claude Duval? So Claude Duval was something that, to me, was ended up being kind of a challenge. My background, I, I started working in St. Helena right after college. And I was working for some larger wineries. And through a couple different, after a couple of vintages, I uh, took a winemaking position at Jarvis Winery. Small, very uh, boutique 
estate-only winery, so only about 40 acres of grapes. And I was the winemaker there for eight years, just making grapes from the property. And it was something that was about, um, about the land. It was always about, this is a unique Jarvis wine because it comes from Jarvis and that kind of thing. Um, which is kind of the French model too. If you're in, sure. if you're at Chateau Margaux, the grapes come from the Chateau. You know, you don't, they're not buying grapes from all right, over right. And what's interesting in California, our typical wineries are not necessarily following that. They're buying grapes from a lot of buying grapes. Yeah, yeah. Lot, I mean, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the thing is, you don't necessarily have complete control over that whole process when you're purchasing. Um, so if you can grow your own grapes, you're in a lot better position. Uh, Clodoval at the time was, you know, going back a few years, they were purchasing a lot of grapes. So we were buying grapes from different growers, just like I was saying, a lot of wineries do. But we actually had quite a bit of land holdings. But the wine, the grapes that we were growing were actually quite valuable. So we were selling our most valuable grapes and buying grapes from elsewhere to to make to make everything work out. It's mind boggling. It is a little bit, but. Um, <laughs> Steve Tamborelli, our new CEO, started about four years ago. He was brought on to, to make some big changes at Clodoval. Uh, the whole management team is new, uh, including myself, about three years ago. I was talking with Steve about this project. And to me, Clodoval has this amazing history, Paris tasting, uh, a lot of, a lot of um, recognition in the marketplace. I mean, it's, it's just a kind of an iconic brand. It's Absolutely. Just, I think of it as like a blue chip brand. You've got you know, a handful of these things that have been in Napa for 40 years or more. Um, and so, great history, love the brand, um, but the wines, for the reasons I mentioned, maybe weren't A-plus wines, but the potential was there. For sure. And my history was making estate wines, and I knew the importance of estate. And so, when uh, Steve was saying, you know, I want to take this, take Clodoval from where it is to 100% estate, I thought this sounds like a great challenge. And I had talked to people that had experience with the fruit that we actually grow and uh, sell, and they were saying, you know, yeah, these are some of the best vineyards in Napa Valley. So there was really, there's a lot of upside, a lot of big potential to, um, to the brand, to the winery. So when I started there, I actually, so the, the vineyard side, the most important part with all those improvements also brought in all new equipment in the winery. So, oh, really? That's a massive investment. It, it was. So we took out a lot of antiquated old, like wood tanks that were, you know, decades old. Sure. Um, brought in new small stainless steel from fermentation vessels and things like that that uh, allow me to take small parcels from our Stagsy vineyards and individually ferment them so that we have a unique, you know, you got this block here. Exactly. And that's what gives you X in your wine. Correct. And, and in the past, if you think about it, you, you might have these little gem blocks, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, I've got dozens and dozens of different blocks, which are different clones and rootstocks and different soils. But in the past, we had large tanks where you take four or five blocks and it would all go to one tank. In, right. Maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But having the ability to keep them separate gives you the most options. How did the changeover from purchasing fruit to all estate fruit affect your volume? It actually made a, a big difference. That was, that was probably the most significant change um, that we had is going from almost, say, 90,000 cases of production to about 35,000. That's significant from a business standpoint. How did you manage that? It's huge. Well, yeah. So, I, well, that that is just kind of a commitment from the family that owns us. So, so the Glett family that owns Clodoval knew that this was going to be, um, you know, call it growing pains, whatever. I mean, this is a major investment in the future, and so they they don't uh, you know buy and sell stuff to flip properties or whatever. Right. They they buy something, they hold it for 
generations. I mean, that's what the family does. You know, they have they own property around and they they keep property forever. So it's not a quick fix. Um, obviously, what we were doing is selling a lot of volume um, at you know fairly low price points because we, and and we were using that purchase grapes to keep the prices low and financing it from selling grapes and things like that. So to be able to, basically what I, I guess the kind of bottom line is with, the, with our new wines that are currently out at Clodeval, it's not like um, this is the same Clodeval and we've just changed the look of it and, and you know, whatever. I mean, these are, these are completely new wines. So it's almost like a relaunch from the mm-hmm. get-go. So what we're doing, we make, we're making much less wine um, we're getting the, the word out in the marketplace, talking to people like yourself, and hey, this is what we're doing. And, and taste the wines, put it in the glass, we want people to taste them, see what's going on, um, and then kind of rebuild that reputation as a you know, top premium Napa Valley winery. So, so it's, a long, it's a long-term investment. Now, Napa Valley Cabernet is not an inexpensive wine. Correct. And Clos Duval was not inexpensive even prior to this changeover. Has the price skyrocketed now on this wine? Is this is it? Are we talking about a two hundred, three hundred dollar bottle of wine now, or what are we talking about? So our our what used to be our Napa Valley Cabernet um, was a thirty eight dollar bottle of wine. Um, that you know, and this was just a couple of years ago. And what we often saw was heavy discounting in because most of our our sales channel was retail. So you go to big sure. retail stores. You know, well, Binnie's in Chicago, Binnie's, yeah. uh, Bevmo, uh, Sam's Club, whatever. Yeah, and you get um, you get a discount of down to you know all the way down to twenty nine bucks or whatever. Like there would just be, you know, it was one of those wines that was kind of on every shelf and right. and, and that, which is good placement, but it became about price. It became about oh, you know, let's get the price where they can sell high volume. We don't really want to be high volume. Um, we want to make the best possible wine, and so. That thirty-eight dollar retail now goes up to about fifty bucks. Okay, so it's still so, not an outrageously expensive bottle of wine. Correct. So the thing is, like I said, it's a new wine. It's a totally different wine. I think it's a value actually, uh, which is yeah. Well, if, relatively as far as speaking, a fifty-dollar bottle can go. Well, and you look at you look at your neighbors, right? So you know we've, we're in Stag's Leap District, where the average bottle of Cabernet being sold is somewhere in the eighties. Yeah. So it's not, um, you know, it's an aggressive position from maybe where we were, but I think it's still. A, on the low side, for it's not. It's not. A, it's definitely not a price where someone going out to look for a bottle of Napa Valley Cabernet is going to blink at fifty bucks a bottle. Correct. It's not. It's not out of, out of the park. And so, and you know, with restaurant markups and stuff, it means it's under a hundred bucks on a wine list. Which is, well, which is the three times markup is alive and well living in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I'll maybe just not say that much. Maybe it depends on where you are. But yeah, no, it, it tends to be in a, in a, in a fairly good position. Um, so yeah, no, the, and you know, we do, of course, make a whole series of wines. So I've got two with me today, but um, we, um, we have them, you know, a, a full range that includes some reserves. And sure, sure. Stuff. Are the vineyards predominantly near the estate there, or are they kind of yeah, scattered so, around Stag's Leap? They're uh, they're no they're all pretty much contiguous with, with the winery parcel. Oh, okay, cool. There. There's um, there's actually one little strip that uh, Chimney Rock, which is a neighbor, mm-hmm. uh, Chimney Rock has one little strip along the driveway that that they have to their winery, and then everything else to the north of that is Clodeval. So it's as as you're driving down Silverado Trail, if you're driving north and you look to the right, you see the Clodeval Winery, right. and then all those grapes you see all the way as you're driving to um, meet. Um, Stagsley wine cellars, wine right. is all Clodeval. So that, that big swath there is, is our grapes. 
that was uh, sort of heart of the fire. How'd you manage through that? It was uh, it was problematic for us. I mean, luckily we didn't have any damage um, physically. The fires were located in the hillsides, right. so when you're when you're looking at Clodoval, if you look behind the winery from the trail, there's there's the hillside and the stag's leap, the, the stag's leap palisades, yeah. and that uh, that all completely burned. So there's a lot of homes that were lost, the people right. that had homes up on there. Um, so the the hillsides burned completely, but as that fire burned down the hillside, it um, stopped at the vineyards because the vineyards were green. So it was October. Um, a lot of dry grass and brush and things. So really but acted like vineyard, a fire break. Yeah, the vineyards were absolutely a fire break. So not, no fire ever penetrated the first row of vines. So Not even the first row? No. That's true. It's, it's amazing because, well, and the other thing is we, you know, we're all, all uh, vineyards essentially in Napa are pretty well tended, right? It's not like we're leaving them right, to right. overgrow. And whatever. It's too valuable. <laughs> so so everybody really manicures and takes care of their vineyards. So all the um, the ground between the vines was all nice and and uh, tilled and, and clear and all that stuff. And so there's there was nothing to burn. Right? Was your fruit in when the fire hit? Yes. So, so your fruit was in. That's good. Our fruit was in. Um, the problem that we had was just so much smoke. So there, there was a period of a week or 10 days where it was just socked in with thick, heavy smoke the whole time. And, um, you know, we had to go in and make the wine. So we had, you know, our crew, we came in every day. Uh, you know, seven days a week there in this heavy smoke with respirators on, you know, trying to trying to get the wine into barrels and, and finish up those fermentations. So. There's a lot of concern about smoke taint in the vintage. There's certain markers that you could look for to tell you if it's going to come up. But some science says that markers really don't tell you that. What, what's your wine look like? I mean, you know, people going out, spend 50 bucks on a bottle of wine, want a, want a good bottle of wine. Correct. I think, um, so it's, smoke tan is a very real thing. Um, that, I mean, obviously this has come up in Napa Valley throughout California, but there's been a lot of tastings and seminars and, you know, how do you deal with it and stuff like that. So I've, I've actually been um, to a lot of tastings and events with smoke tan issues. And what's, what's amazing about it is it, so for one thing, it only affects grapes on the vine or grapes themselves. In other words, wine is pretty much immune. Once the, once you have a wine, like say you have a tank of wine and it's right. fermenting, it's safe. It's not going to enter the wine. What it does is it goes through the grape skin itself. So the skin is penetrated by the smoke compounds, glycols, and they go through and attach themselves to sugar molecules. So the sugar has this smoke kind of attached to it internally. And what's crazy, and I did this, is you could taste grapes that have been out in the smoke. And they taste fine. It tastes like a normal grape, nice fruit flavor, no problem. And you start fermenting it. And as you ferment the sugar, the smoke it's compounds through the are... the fermentation process, exactly. it reveals itself. Exactly. So the, the sugar is removed through fermentation and the smoke is left. And so you have a wine that initially, when it's sweet and all that, it's fine, no problem. But as soon as it becomes dry and no sugar, it's, it's a smoky ashtray kind of wine. And it really is an off-putting taste. Luckily, we didn't have any issues with that, having our grapes in the winery already. But other wineries, unfortunately, did. Yeah, well, did. that's the last stuff to come in is that high-end Napa Cabernet, exactly. right? Exactly. And so, the, the unfortunately, I mean, I, I'm talking, there's a lot of people I've talked to, you know, oh, did you get your fruit in? Yeah, And it was either, yeah, our fruit's in, or yeah, most of it was in. Or I've talked to people that said none of our fruit was in by the time the fire happened. So, so there is going to be some, some interesting. Yeah. Of high-end producers, you could 
trust, I think, that they're not going to take a chance with their brand and putting out a bad wise, line. You put it's something just like that in the bottle, it's not good. Exactly. Yeah. So the, well, I think that the trend is going to be people maybe either making very little wine or some people may be skipping the vintage altogether. Sure. I could see that happening. Going back to Clodoval and the, the vineyards that you're making your wines from now are the original vineyards that were being used in the Correct. early 70s That's right. when the Judgment of Paris tasting happened. Mm-hmm. What's sort of your vision for the wines now that you're making with just a state fruit? Yeah, so the, the, the vines themselves are you know, phenomenal as far as the, the intensity of the fruit. I mean, they're, they're amazing. And, and then what, like you mentioned, going back through our wine library, which is a great thing. Again, you know, having a, have a wine with a history like this. Yesterday, I had the 1977 Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, nice. And uh, out of Magnum too, which is great. That wine still is fresh and bright and has nice fruit concentration. You know, it shows age, obviously. I'm 41 years old or whatever, but it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how well those wines age. And that wine was made from the exact vineyard that the wine I have today right. was made. So that gives you an idea of the potential of the fruit longevity. Stylistically, the the wines that I'm trying to do at Clodoval are not um, overly extracted, super sweet, syrupy, you know. That, roast. Yeah, <laughs> that, that whole thing. Uh, so the idea is to kind of kind of take some of that historic, stylistic, uh, you know, the, the original winemaker, Bernard Portet, Frenchman, right? He came from Bordeaux and he said, this is how you make wine because this is what they do it in Bordeaux. Uh, the thing that's different between Napa and Bordeaux is really the weather. What I think is funny is when you have a vintage in Bordeaux that tends to be heralded as, oh, this is fantastic vintage. Those are always the hot years, right. the hot vintages. So those hot years are basically a normal year in Napa Valley. Right. So it's it's kind of there, there's similar kind of patterns as far as um, you know the the grapes growing in both regions, but we are a bit warmer. And as long as you tend the vines in the proper way, you you almost get like a fantastic year every every year. <laughs> and so the um, but the idea is to 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 look at those grapes and get them physiologically ripe as soon as you can. So as opposed to just looking at sugar and saying, oh, I want really ripe grapes, right. tasting the grapes, looking at seed maturity, um, looking at the phenolics in the grapes, so looking at the tannin in the grape itself. I know we have labs that can do this now. So you take the grapes in and analyze them, you get numbers, and that gives you that gives you another tool uh, aside from just taste uh, and, you know, and, and looking at the grapes and stuff to say, yeah, these, these, these numbers are looking where they need to be. I don't want really high tannin levels and the colors there and all that stuff. And so basically trying to get the grapes where they have the, the most flavor, but not necessarily just the most sugar. What was your first vintage at Clodoval? So I came in at the end of 15. So, okay. so the 15s were, um, so the, the kind of the transition that we had was was with the fourteen. Vintage. That's where you started. Yeah, fourteen was the last year you bought fruit, and uh, fifteen. Well, no, no. Well, see, yes, okay. So we did. So when I got there, the fourteen vintage was in barrel. Right. And so what I did with the fourteen was I had barrels of wine that were purchased grapes, purchased you know made from purchased grapes. So I actually got rid of. So I sold off those. So I sold those. Oh, you sold that wine off. Yeah. So so we had a lot of fourteen. It was from vineyards all over the place. Okay. This is this is on the on the on the sale block. So we sold that stuff, um, and then I took and made those blends from 
Clodoval grapes that that had been harvested. So okay. it was a much smaller vintage because I only had less had less wine right, to work right. with. But we did have quite a bit of wine that was was harvested. So that that was uh, that first vintage, and then starting with fifteen was then full estate. Kind of that was the intention from the beginning. So there wasn't any purchased fruit, uh, and then as well as sixteen seventeen. Great. Should we taste some wine? Yeah, why not? So this first one is Estate Cabernet. Well, 15 was sort of a beast of a year, like 13, it's a warm year. huh? Yeah, a warm year for sure. So it was a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit hot and fast, you know, kind of, ideally you'd want nice, cool, uh, you know, start to the season and, you know, gradual warming and, you know, we call them degree days, like mm-hmm. the sort of uh, accumulation of heat. 15 was a little warmer than uh, we'd like, probably. But, you know, it, it still ended up being one of those vintages where it came, all the fruit came in before. Uh, you know, our, our biggest issue, I, I would say, is at the end of the growing season, rain, right? Right, right. So, I mean, typically on the ideal year, we get no rain from, you know, whatever, May to, to October. And that usually kind of happens. Uh, but then every once in a while, you get one of these vintages where there's, towards the end of the growing season, when the grapes are not quite ripe, you get a lot of rain. Not, not ideal. It's not good. <laughs> so so, um, so it's, it's kind of, you're balancing that. You know, you don't want too much heat, but you also don't want to have the season go too long in short sure. rain season. Wow. There's a lot going on here. Current and mm-hmm. little... Little like uh, menthol or not quite eucalyptus, but yeah, little bit yeah, I get of that. that in there. I think, and what differentiates this from maybe uh, what I think is previous Clodoval wines. This has much more intensity. Mm. You know, it, it's really. I mean, if you think about, and what's great is doing. You know, what we do at the wineries, I'll, I'll get competitive sets. So I'll get wineries up and down the valley. Sure bring those in and do it blind. So you've got this wine in with a bunch of heavy hitters that are, you know, well-known Napa, Napa products. And um, the wines always show quite well. There's some, like, Dutch cocoa at the end. And um, one of the things I love about this wine is it's really well it's really well balanced. It's not, some of those Napa cabs get, you said extracted yeah, yeah. and sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, this much. is not that. No. This is really nice acidity, really mm-hmm. bright, high acidity. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and the tannins are young and grippy, and yep. those will come down over time. Exactly. So this and this is a brand new release. This is something that, um, yeah, will uh, will definitely kind of manage itself uh, with a bit more bottle age. But I think, like you said, uh, one one component that I always look for is to have a wine that doesn't taste heavy on the palate, which is really sugar, right? Right. So when you have that kind of sweetness, you get that heavy cloying. It's, yeah, like of, like like it's syrupy almost. Right. And and when wines like that. And there's plenty of people that make them. I feel like they're good for a half a glass. Like, oh, okay, you know, it, it, they might taste really pleasant, but you're kind of like weighed down. On, you know, whereas I want, I want something that you can have, you know, on the dinner table and finish the bottle with. You know, like well, it's not, this with a piece of steak could be yeah. a very happy time. Exactly. So and then I like to pair pair these together so you can get kind of an idea between. No, what two. is this one? So this is Herondale Vineyard. So this is a much smaller kind of uh, boutique production. Herondale is the name that we gave to our estate vineyard. So it's the vineyard that surrounds the winery. Uh, it's all Stagsley. And the name actually came about because 
we had um, we had a problem, if you will, um, with birds. Every year, they're swallows, right? The, you know, the swallows. It's like mm-hmm. they they come to Clodoval every March, and they have for decades, for forty plus years. So the birds show up and they make a tremendous mess because they, they show sure. up in the tens of thousands. And they swarm around. They just swarm. Just to Clodoval. Just to Clodoval. They don't come to Chimney Rock. They don't come to Schaefer. <laughs> Aren't you lucky? I know. <laughs> so they don't come anywhere else. And it's really interesting. It's uh, it's like salmon going back upstream right, to where yeah, they, they were born or whatever. Really it is. I, I, there's some sort of genetic thing with these birds where they, they come to this winery no matter what. That's the only winery they go to. Um and they, yeah, I mean, there's, they don't, they, and they go to like the same part. It's bizarre. They have a, they have this, this thing. And so because they're so many of them, they make a tremendous mess and they, they build nests, mud nests, right? What we did over the years, several years ago, we started putting nets up under the, um, the eaves of the winery, under the roof, because that's where they like to build the nests. So we put nets up and then they started just building nests on the net. So right. the net itself had the net, you know, nests, these mud nests all over. <laughs> and then so we said, okay, well, we're going to get, you know, they're still making a mess. We're going to get um, some something to scare them off. So we have these, like, plastic owls that go on the yeah. roof on yeah. all the corners. They'd make nests on the owls. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you. Yeah. And so, like, you, I mean, you name it. You, you come up with something and they didn't care. They figure out some way to do it anyway. So we eventually realized that the the source of food for these guys is our vineyards in Stag's Leap. Right. They eat the insects from the vineyards. They bring them up to the babies in the nests and stuff like that. And they, so that's why they're constantly swarming around. They're, they're taking food up to the nests mm-hmm. and back and forth. Fairly recently, we said, you know, we're not going to beat these guys. We've tried everything. <laughs> so we said, why don't we just name the vineyard after them? So we did. Huh. So uh, a Swallow Vineyard didn't sound like a great name. Yeah, no. no yeah. <laughs> so, Herondale is the French word for swallow. Oh, okay. So, a Herondale is a little bird, and uh, Herondale Vineyard is our estate vineyard. And so, this is really kind of the, the gold uh, for Claude Duval's, this this amazing vineyard. Um, this is 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and 100% from Herondale. So it's, okay. it's a, it, and it's, it's a true single it's vineyard. A true single vineyard. And I, I cherry pick the best barrels and the whole deal. So about a thousand case production. So very, very small. Right. And it's, you know, in wood boxes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And this, this kind of represents the best Cabernet from where we are. So, and my thought on, on the, the varietal thing was like on our state Cabernet, there's some Merlot, a little bit of Cap Franc. Sure. And some blending varieties. But I really want to focus on just that grape. And have that because that's really the most important grape for us is our stag sleep cabernet. Really floral, huh? Yeah. There's a there's a finesse and elegance to this. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that pretty? It has this lingering. I mean, that, that's that's what's. I think really special about this vineyard is you get the this sort of velvety tannin. Yeah, the tannins just, aren't super just, grippy. No, right, exactly. I mean, this wine is built to age, but it's also not something that you know you can't touch for ten years or whatever. It's it's actually There's plenty of wine could, that could go either way. You have to wait ten, twenty years before right. you can even consider drinking it. Right. But yeah, this is uh, very nice. Uh, you said thousand cases. Yeah. And I'm, so, I'm assuming this is mostly like a restaurant wine. Yeah, it's a restaurant wine. I mean, it's this is sort of our reserved here. Um, most of it is sold in restaurants. I mean, it's rare to find this. I mean, maybe a fine wine shop or something like that. Um, the majority of this is sold direct to uh, club members. And things. Mm-hmm. So, so we have probably 
I don't know, three or 400 cases that's distributed around the country. So like a state like Illinois might have 20 cases in this wine or 18 cases. So it's a, it's a, you know, a harder, harder wine to find. Sure. But it's, um, yeah, it's something that's kind of a special fun wine. Well, long, just yeah. keeps going, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Did I read that there's a new tasting experience at the winery now? Yes. What's yes. that all about? So that is uh, still still under construction. So what we did, it's, nothing nothing really has been added to the winery. It's pretty much as, as it's... The same wood back, building back there. Back in the 70s, there was no such thing as a tasting room. Um, from what I've... Stories I've heard from Bernard and such is that uh, back in the 70s and early 80s, people would... You know, maybe once a month or once every couple of months, someone would come by, like, can I taste wine? And they would say, well, I, I guess so. I'm sure, let's <laughs> grab something. Other. You know, it was, but it wasn't what we have now, which is this massive kind of tourist right. thing. Especially in Napa. It's right. really a curated experience. Exactly. So back in the day, there was no tasting room. And then somewhere in the mid-80s, they said, you know what? We should probably have a tasting room for this place because... Other wineries, you know, Mandavi had one, and other wineries were popping up with these tasting room things. So they took the tanks out of one of the front parts of the winery and then fashioned it as a tasting room with, uh, you know, they changed the floor and put in a a bar and stuff. And since the mid-'80s, it's been the exact same spot. It's a And it's just a long bar, and you walk up and you eat your glass, which, which is fine. But the thing that I think is most important for any winery, really, is to get someone's full attention, sit down like we are right now, and talk about the wine, right? Um, because if you're in a busy tasting room at the bar and you reach your glass over and someone splashes some wine in there and then they run off and, and you're three deep, you know, like you're not, you're, you're drinking wine, but you're yeah, not, you don't really know you're what you're not getting you're your education. You don't know what that is in that glass. And so the idea was we need something where we can have a sit down experience. Um, you know, with the one-on-one with somebody that works at the winery and, and we'll talk about the ones we didn't, weren't set up for that. So we actually built this, this extension to the front of the winery that it kind of blends in with the roof line. So it's not going to be something that's, you know, changing really the look of the winery, but it has a, uh, a couple of private sit down tasting areas as well as, you know, some little nooks and things that, that people can sit down and have a nice, uh, nice experience with all new beautiful furnishings. And, and of course, yeah like 50 foot koi pond because you got to have a koi pond. <laughs> little water feature. So um, just think, you know, some things kind of upgrading the uh, the aesthetic and the, the experience to come visit. And I think it's actually really important because we made so many changes with the wine itself that if you don't change the experience too, it feels halfway there. You know, oh, these wines are now That's a different deal, but you're sitting at the old bar from so 1984. So really an extension of just going... Correct. It's, it's going back to a, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So we have, you know, all these changes with the winery, you know, the experience that really gets to show that off. And so, and there's, you know, a lot of outdoor space that's, uh, you know, the landscaping and everything. We actually have a, a brand new entrance off Silverado Trail. So in the past, it was a very old, um, you know, gate and, um, and wall thing and such. And now we have new, you know, beautiful new landscaping and signage and stuff. So. And when is that going to be open? Uh, it should be early September. So, you know, okay, month, a month right out or so. And- yeah. So not not long, and that's uh, it's something I'm excited. Obviously, we're, we're all really excited to see. Um, one of the things that's kind of neat is the interior of the space. So this this you know very large um, area where all the tasting is going to be. Um, all the walls and ceiling were recycled wine tanks, the wood wine tanks. Interesting. So we had at Claude Duval, we had all these old tanks that were 30, 40 years old, and um, you know we were kind of 
getting rid of some of that old stuff to put in new modern equipment uh, for the new the new wines. And as opposed to getting you know just getting rid of this wood, they uh, we had it planed and cleaned up and stuff. And so all of the all of the interior uh, spaces are this this you know historic. Some of these going back to the you know the seventies and eighties um, that are now part of this part of this uh, visitor experience. Really cool. Look forward to coming out yeah. and seeing it. Well, Ted, thanks so much for your time, uh, your commitment to the heritage of what Claude Duval was and will be, be is important, and it's obvious. I could hear it in your voice. Uh, I look forward to tasting your wines in years to come. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 